it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hemingway, Eichmann, Stranger in a Strange Land, Dylan, Berlin, Bay of Pigs Invasion, Lawrence of Arabia, British Beatlemania, Ole Miss, John Glenn, Liston Beats Patterson. Massive knockouts. Ooh, ouch. Hello again, and welcome to episode 92 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em, sock'em, action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. Tom, I'm kind of wondering how we got to where we are today, because Billy thinks it might have something to do with Liston Beats Patterson. Are we talking about punching contests again? <laughs> Look at your excitement, Katie. <laughs> You've missed these, haven't you? Oh, well, It's been we, a while since we've had any baseball as well. Oh, oh, I'm just wasting away here. Yeah, we, we've covered a few fighters here. We had Marciano in the yeah, past. Did, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Sugar Ray. Yeah. What's the whoop here with the... Uh, Liston and Patterson. This was not only a huge fight, Katie, it was for the world heavyweight title. It happened on the 25th of September 1962. Certainly the first fight did because there was a rematch. But I think this is as much about the backstory and the afterstory of the two men involved. So mm. Sonny Liston, and we'll get into this, but Sonny Liston came from a devastatingly hard background. 24th of 25 kids. Wait, wait, hold on. Stop press. 25 children. 25 children. And he's number 24. 24. Uh, grew up in extreme poverty and was seen by the establishment as a bad man. Now, he was a bad man in many ways, but we'll explore, Katie, right. if he was as bad as made out to be. And then Floyd Patterson, yeah. who was a smaller man and a great fighter was more favoured by the establishment both would have career defining fights later on with Cassius K slash Muhammad Ali mm. so this is as much about how America felt about these fighters as the fight itself right and Katie here to help us talk through all these issues I'm very pleased to say is the boxing journalist Declan Taylor also co-host of the excellent George Groves Boxing Club podcast Deck, welcome thank you for having me I'll take excellent <laughs> what a subject to get a teeth stuck into and two fighters not just one not just Marciano Robinson two two yeah. in one Shall we start with Sonny Liston and his backstory? Because oh, yeah. he does things in his life that make him hard to love. But equally, when you find out what he went through, it's almost impossible not to feel at least some tinge of sympathy. Yeah, I always think Sonny Liston, he's, he's one of the, in boxing anyway, one of the most heartbreaking stories in all of boxing, if not all of sport, when you think about it. And like you say at the start, Tom, that 24 of 25 children never had an easy 
doesn't excuse the life of crime that he went into. He ended up getting arrested 20 times or more. Went to prison, actually went to prison during his boxing career as well. Fearsome guy, but the, the context, particularly when you look back at it now, massive time of social change. And he's at the heart of it as someone that nobody liked. This was not just white people disliked him, but he had detractors in the black community as well. And it's sad because people look at Sonny Liston and think, well, this guy was just sort of this big thug and none of it went in. But some of the things he said were quite sad because he did affect him and he did care. He did care about what people thought and how he was perceived by his race. It's an incredible story. Floyd Patterson gets in the way of him at the wrong time as well because also we should point out at this time there was a three four year period when he was one of the greatest heavyweights of all time and people forget that because it was quite a short explosive spell a bit like how people talk about Mike Tyson to be honest Hmm. people almost overlook that he sort of burnt very brightly for a while Hmm. and then he very literally faded away. One of the things that really struck me was the intensity of the hardship that Sonny Liston had to endure as a child. He worked on his family farm. Apparently the family mule died and his father treated him as the mule. He could be seen in the ring with welts on his back that were the legacy of his dad whipping him Mm. when he was working for him. So he came from this incredible hardship and this hard scrabble life where he had to do anything to survive. So that's going to make you a little walled off and not the most tender, accessible human being, I would have thought. He escaped that when he was 13, so they say. So he ran away, turned up to St. Louis and then I guess you get involved in crime, don't you? Especially at that time. What else is he going to do? That was the, that was where he turned. You know, for want of a better phrase, he basically, because he was such a fearsome bloke, he became, to all intents and purposes, a kind of mob enforcer. It's the sort of guy that if you wanted something done violently, Sonny's your man. <laughs> but obviously at the same time, there's money to be made and there's success to be had in the ring if you're that sort of person. And in fact, in prison is where he learned to exactly. to box. Yeah. I mean, that was actually going to prison was his saving grace. Yeah, you know, and then to, to end up at the very top as the world heavyweight champion. It's an incredible story, but the, the context, yeah, especially the contrast with the story of Floyd Patterson is quite startling. And you can see, particularly in that era where people don't really have access to these characters. It's literally what the newspapers tell you, what you read, the the odd snippet you might actually be able to ingest about these people. So in terms of like forming narratives and stories, it's far easier actually. You kind of have very little to draw upon to draw a conclusion and it was clearly this guy's a thug. And so let's contrast it with Patterson's background. So he was born in North Carolina but his family moved to New York when he was when he was young he was thieving got into petty crime and they sent him to a reform school to sort him out basically and that was where he started to turn his life around he started boxing when he was 14 so we're talking 1949 and he starts boxing and he's very good very quickly but he's small he goes to Helsinki Olympics within three or four years of boxing as a middleweight which is 75 kilos which mm. is really not big and he's what 5'11 he's, he? he's not even six foot so to think what he did at the heavyweight division is incredible. So he started off on a difficult path, but he turned it around much sooner than, than Sonny Liston. He, he's the hero and he had that Olympic background. The great revered trainer Customato spotted him quite early on. He won the Golden Gloves, which at the time was massive. So he was earmarked as the hero mm. at the time. But not only that, also known as the gentleman of boxing, you know, because the way that he spoke to people. And as far as I can tell... 
he was crippled by what people thought of him. And that's often the case when it comes to people pleasers. You know, a classic people pleaser, they really care what people think about them. And how that manifests sometimes is how you interact with people, how you speak to them. And reporters and such like loved that about him. It's the exact opposite of Sonny Liston. Oh, that's so interesting because Sonny Liston would be just so like, I don't give an F, you know. And also, let's contrast their physicality. What was the look of Sonny Liston? Because people always talk about his effect in the ring and his menace and how intimidating he is. Can you talk about his, his look and his whole manner? It's funny you should say that because if you read pieces about the time, you would think that he's this gargantuan kind of ogre and then Patson's like this light, slight guy. He's much bigger than him. Mm-hmm. But heavyweight terms then was different to what they are now. He's not six foot nine. He's not 300 pounds. He's, he's reasonably big and he's huge and he has this incredible reach as well, which facilitates one of the best jabs in boxing history. You know, the, the long straight lead hand, which he throws amazingly, of course, and that's kind of the basis for everything that comes behind it. But it's clear that one of them is kind of scary and the other one is not so scary just an eye test will tell you that and they're different sorts of fighters well you referenced Castamato the great boxing trainer who another 20 years on will look after a young Mike Tyson and in fact become Tyson's legal guardian maybe looks after Tyson in the happiest period of an unhappy life so if we're to look at the two men in the ring deck describe to us the where they're fighting because Castamato his fight has always had that Peekaboo. Peekaboo, yeah. Style. So talk us through yeah. that. So if you go and look at Floyd Patterson fights, this is exactly what it is, that peekaboo style. And at the time, obviously, there's the formation of all different styles and things are popping up and you get different things in the South and people are doing different things in New York. But Cuss clearly liked this peekaboo style, which essentially means your hands are up. And it hadn't necessarily been established that you want to put your ha- keep your hands up because then you don't get hit as, as much, which makes a lot of sense. But at the time, it wasn't quite as simple as that. Anyway, so we had this peekaboo style, which also re- relies on head movement and slipping, taking your head, what we call, on and off the line. So the line, if you imagine, is punches coming straight at you. You want to take your head off either side of it, of course. makes perfect sense. And not only that, it's what we call positive defense, is if you take your head off the line, you're still in range to deliver a counter shot, as opposed to a negative defense where you might take a step back and then you're, you're not in range. And when you really think about it, it's exactly what Mike Tyson did. And Mike Tyson was a small heavyweight for, for his era. Peekaboo style, moving left and right constantly, countering over the top with hooks. Floyd Patterson had this incredible leaping left gazelle hook, as it was called. The parallels between Floyd Patterson and Mike Tyson are uncanny, and it's clear that they had the same mentor. Yeah, and any of the footage you watch of him is beautiful to watch. And it's incredible because often the guys are bigger than him. But then you come up against Sonny Liston, who I should add, not only was Cuss's trainer... But he was also his advisor and his manager, and for want of a better word or better phrase. So he never wanted him to fight Sonny Liston. He knew. Because he knew he was too dangerous. He sees a killer, he knows one. So now we know all about how Patterson conducts himself in the ring. What are the techniques and the styles and the moves of Sonny in the ring? When we talk about a jab, we talk about a lead our lead hand thrown straight to head or body. So for a southpaw, that'd be your right hand. He's an orthodox boxer, carries his right hand at the back, left hand forward. So he's got this unbelievable jab because he's got this incredible wingspan. It's said that he had the same reach as Vladimir Klitschko, this big, you know, this giant jabber from eras beyond him. And then behind it, he's got incredible power, both hands, head and body, just a fearsome, fearsome guy, a brute. And like I said, in the sort of three or four years before he boxes Patterson for his world title shot, his first world title shot, long awaited, he is just on a rampage, knocking everyone out, all the other contenders, 
just icing everyone left, right and centre. And people are like, they're seeing Floyd Patterson and they're thinking, this, this guy doesn't need Sonny Liston. And then when you think about the context of it, nobody likes him. He's anti-establishment. He doesn't speak well. You can see why there was this, why they didn't want to put him in straight away and particularly Cuss who knew that. Then what happens is, like I mentioned, he has this real fear of being judged by people, Patterson. Mm. And people are starting to suggest that he doesn't want it with Liston and Cuss wants to keep him away. So he almost manufactures this himself mm. that I need to do it because I need to prove that that I'm not a coward. I need to prove that I can do it against Liston, even in the face of the advice from his coach and his mentor, Cuss. And he is truly terrified of that coward tag. Hugely. In case we referenced in the Joe DiMaggio episode, we referenced the profile of Joe DiMaggio written by the American writer Gay Talese, oh, right. who also writes a staggeringly good piece about Floyd Patterson a couple of years after this fight, and it's simply called The Loser. And amongst the amazing facts and reflections that you get on Floyd Patterson is the fact that in his suitcase for every one of his fights, he would pack a pair of false glasses and a false beard. Such was his horror that if he were to lose and be recognised on the way out, the shame that would be brought on him, he would rather leave a venue in disguise rather than face an angry crowd. Oh my gosh, so he's a fighter physically but mentally can't really hack it like the humiliation is almost his biggest foe i i'm really interested in this idea that liston was considered so scary by other terrifying to me <laughs> big muscly men the other men that he boxed let's talk about the psychological warfare was was there something that would happen outside the ring with Liston before like was there something that he would do to kind of set everybody's nerves a jangle I mean to start with he was obviously huge but he had said that he had 14 inch fists so colossal fists mm. I never measured him but, <laughs> but it, that's what that's what he said and therefore also it said that he had to spar in 22 ounce gloves so to put that into context heavyweight boxing fight you'll have 10 ounce gloves you usually spar in 16 18 so you're talking 22 ounce gloves, pillows hmm. because the sparring partners just can't take it otherwise they also said to have worn chest protectors at times which is just quite brutal because you wear head guards you wear a groin guard the idea you need to something on your chest to stop your, your chest getting caved in by this this guy Ugh. so quite grim so there's all these stories swirling around and then he's the king of the stare down anyway he said that patterson looked away from him patterson sort of said i look away from everyone i don't, don't really read much uh. into it but when you've got someone like him he'd only lost he'd lost once to be fair on the come up apart from that he's knocking everyone out so he hasn't really got to do much it's much like mike tyson that it gets to a point where people are aware of how dangerous you are before you step in the ring, before you even make the fight. So just in your head, you know, this is a, a human that you kind of want to avoid physical contact with. But Patterson needed it. He needed it because he couldn't be seen as the person who in any way tried to avoid it. One moment that I think, and I believe it was on the undercard of when Patterson boxed Ingemar Johansson in a rematch. Sonny List was on the undercard too. He also won early. And JFK said, I would have preferred to see Patterson Liston than the two fights we saw tonight. Patterson heard that. He, he was told about this remark and he thought, the president is even suggesting I'm fighting this guy and my manager's telling me not to and, you know, I need to fight this guy. I can't right. be the person who avoids him. It must have been so hard for Sonny Liston, though, because on the one hand, his uh, superpower is his ability to intimidate just with his look, just with a scowl, with a stare. But it's so effective that nobody likes him. <laughs> and it seems that... 
the optics of the two fighters were harder to tackle than the actual physical fighting itself. Let's talk about this whole idea of the good Negro, mm. which Patterson was considered, versus the thug, which was Liston. And these racist stereotypes were being perpetuated even by the African-American yeah. community, which you had mentioned earlier. And their desire was to foreground Patterson as this cultural role model. I mean, that must have been so frustrating for Sonny Liston, who's probably thinking, I am an athlete at the top of my game. You know, why am I not being celebrated? Yeah, it's an incredibly uncomfortable situation when you really try and think about how that must have been at the time. He was perceived as, quote unquote, the wrong version of blackness. And that was at a time when obviously there was, they were on the cusp of this incredible social change. Percy Sutton, who's Malcolm X's attorney, and at that very moment was the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People the president of that had said that Patterson represents us better than Liston ever could or would. This isn't just a white thing that they don't like this guy. There was this fear that he was in some way the wrong symbol of blackness. Right. And, and like you say, can you just imagine what that must have felt like for Sonny Liston, who's still a human, still hearing and perceiving this sure. at the time. And that somehow Patterson is the guy that everyone believes should be how black people are represented. But he's, he's saying, well, what am I doing? Then? What, yeah, what am what I does chopped that make li- me? Yeah, chop liver. Yeah, and some of this comes from the mob connections that yeah, that wouldn't have helped. Sonny Liston is supposed to have, and I'm never quite sure, Deck, how close he is to the mob. I mean, because a lot of fighters at that point, the whole heavyweight division, until Cassius Clay, until Muhammad Ali, had mob connections, and these are these are not nice men. They they might have quite amusing names, men like Frankie Palermo and you know Binky Carbone, and you know, but they are they are nasty men and they had power, so you didn't always have a choice. No, no, precisely that, and particularly if you were to get involved in them at a time when maybe you weren't so revered or you weren't carving a you know your own way through the heavyweight division and you were skint, then how do you get out of it? And when you really think about it, if you're if you're in the mob and you're trying to find an enforcer, who better? to find than the, the most fearsome bloke that you can really find on the street, who then just also happens to be good at fighting. That's what he does. It's kind of murky. You don't really know where the link starts and where it ended or how long they controlled him, how long they controlled many boxers at that point. You know, Nobody knows that. But it's one of those kind of no smoke without fire situation where you think it followed him around for so long. And at the time, that was all, always used as the, the kind of stick to beat him with, that he was a mob man anyway. So how can he be allowed to fight for the pinnacle of sport and achievement, which it was 100% at the time. Not so much now, maybe it's faded in some way, but being the heavyweight champion of the world at that time really was that. So to have this this kind of murky guy involved in the mob carrying that title was also a problem for many people. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners, it's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you, about better help. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. 
All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So, last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Take Katie and I by the hand here, Deck, and lead us into Kaminsky Park in Chicago on this night in 1962. There's 18-odd thousand people there. What can we see, first of all? What can we see? Are we clustered around the ring? Is around the ring, the ring. Brightly lit? Yeah, exactly. Brightly lit ring. Exactly what you might imagine one of those old school boxing yeah. nights to look like and like you say 18,000 which doesn't sound like a lot but it was at the time and also if you go back and watch the the video of it because it's available on the telecast they say that this is the most lucrative fight ever which again could well have been at the time it was it was shown on theaters across the world obviously no pay-per-view in your house or anything like that there were 600 sports reporters there which is incredible number to think about like i've been at world title fight maybe not world heavyweight title fights but i've been at world title fights and it's me and two others yeah 600 <laughs> of them it tells you the, the landscape of the sporting media at the time and how people ingested this this sort of event but yeah it's people crowded around the ring booing for liston he comes in he's wearing white and you've got the two the contrasting figures liston this surly guy patterson with his nice hair it was a colossal deal the president's talking about it civil rights activists are talking about it it's the number one sporting sort of achievement in the world and you have this guy that nobody likes and nobody wants to win but everyone kind of knows is gonna win mm. on his way there going into the ring about to end boxing in fact that when he does go on and win the fight spoiler alert 
people say it was the death of boxing because you can't have this guy as the world heavyweight champion. I don't understand the death of boxing. You just, uh, this man came in and advanced the sport with his skills. Yeah, exactly. That, well, that's how you would look at it now. But this is how damaging people thought it was to have Sonny Liston as the world heavyweight champion. Wow. That it ki- would kill the sport. I must say, we're told that boxing dies every sort of every yeah. three weeks now. But then it was a big thing. I mean, when you really think about the context of it, what damage did it do to the sport? Maybe it did damage the sport in that in that sense because it really was a if Floyd Patterson had won that it would have been this incredible moment for civil rights picture as as it was perceived at that time and he didn't and this is a narrative that which goes back through boxing the idea of a black champion who is considered good or bad by the whites in America so Joe Lewis was considered a good man because he fought in the second world war did he Whereas Jack Johnson was considered an ogre, yeah. much like Liston, a bad Unforgivable. man. Unforgivable. Yeah, exactly that. So it was kind of one or the other. And you sort of nailed your colours to the mast in that sense, in that you were one or the other. And it carried on throughout boxing history, in that, like we say, race was such a huge social subject at the time, and it still is to this day. But back then, at that time, it was, it was crucial. The weird thing is that the fight itself is... <laughs> Massively underwhelming. Yeah. Not only is it short, not only is it wrapped up in the first round, but Patterson gives a very poor account of himself. Yeah. So in one of the reports, I believe Sports Illustrated, one of the one of the long reads up, which they were, said never has so little been seen by so many because <laughs> it was such a colossal event, and like you say, within a round it's over, and not just over, but he's done. What goes wrong for Patterson? He, he needs to, as a smaller man, against someone with a long jab, you have to get closer. He's got no chance. You need to. Use your peekaboo style, slip inside. When you get there, you need to do some damage to the body, try and slow him down. He, he needed to somehow last a few rounds. Liston, this wrecking ball, get him through a few rounds, get him, let him get tired, work his body, put water in the basement, as we say, and then take over later on. Use this superior skill set that guided him to Olympic gold, that guided him through all these defences of world heavyweight champion. Instead, he just sort of hangs about in the mid to long range, the worst place you can be, just gets picked off. I think he attempts one of his gazelle hooks, which doesn't make a dent in him. And he just takes over, uppercut every shot in the book. And worse, when he gets close to him, when Patterson finally does get close to him, Liston, the bigger, stronger man, he wins those exchanges as well. Like you say, it's almost underwhelming. And it should be this incredible contest for this unbelievable prize. And it's just a mismatch. And that's exactly how this felt. And Patterson accepted that he got it wrong. He said his head wasn't in the game. He said, my thoughts were lingering and maybe he did freeze. If he's so worried about what everyone thinks, he maybe did freeze on that stage. There were questions about his chin from the Ingemar Johansson fight. He'd been stopped by Ingemar Johansson. A good chin means that you can hold a shot. So you get hit in the face and you're okay. And if you haven't got a good chin, you've got no chance against Sonny Liston at that time. Did these men know each other outside of the ring, socialise at mm. all? or I wouldn't have thought so. No. That's a that's a very good question, but I think the circles that they moved in were very different. Patterson was ahead of him in terms of his progress because of the Olympics and everything else. Sure. And also he was on a different path, the sort of B-side path, and it happens even today. If you're not the golden boy, you go a certain other way, and he had to wait a long time for that shot. And also bear in mind at that time there's one title, so there's one world heavyweight title. Right. Now there's four belts. Right, right. So you could quite easily be Floyd Patterson today and Sonny Liston wins another version of the world heavyweight title and you never have to go anywhere near him because he's too dangerous but you could still just defend, 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 never go near Liston. At that point you couldn't. So Tom, I'm thinking that Patterson probably reached into his little uh, tote bag after the fight and whipped out his uh, fake beard. 
Yeah. And, and, and uh, whatever else he had. What else did he have? Prosthetic nose? The strange thing is, is the greater humiliation is almost reserved for Liston because Liston goes back to his adopted hometown of Philadelphia yeah. and gets off the plane and he's the world heavyweight champion and he's expecting an adoring crowd and th- there's no one there but the baggage handlers. Yeah, <gasps> and he's expecting something and there's no one there. Oh and, no, and that is crushing. It's so crushing. And, yeah. and you're right, Patterson leaves in shame. Although he said it wasn't shame, he just didn't want to be recognised, but it's shame that is the the driver behind that. Sure. But then Liston goes and he thinks he's finally done it yeah. and in that sort of fashion and there's no one there. At the time, it was it was written, so it's true in a fair fight between good and evil, evil must win. And a celebration for Philadelphia's first heavyweight champion is now in order. Emily Post probably would recommend a ticker tape parade for confetti we can use shredded warrants of arrest you know so this is what they're talking about so he's done it but really he can't shake off and that was just in the local paper that was a local paper in Philadelphia and he said this is funny because it signalled a change in how he started thinking about reporters and what people said about him is that he said I'm not going to hate this person this writer I'm going to try and get him on side he said now I got that title, I want to make a deal with sports writers all over the world. If I do something bad, I want them to tell the world about it. But if I do something good, I want them to tell the world about that too. If the time of the rematch comes around, I haven't proved myself. If they can't say I've been a credit to my race too, then I want to give Patson the title back. Just give it back and he don't even have to fight me for it. He said he used to listen to Joe Lewis fights on the radio and hear the commentator always say he's a credit to the sport and he's a credit to his race. Wow. So he craved that. And he thought that winning the world title would change that. It didn't. If anything, it went sent him further the other way. It's so cruel, isn't it? Particularly because apparently a lot of this public image was at odds with the private man. You know, you hear stories about him regaling people with great comedy skits where he does all the voices in the right order. Yeah. This is what I mean by his, this heartbreaking figure in sport because it's all of that. And he's clearly a sensitive guy and lucid and intelligent, but because of the way he's perceived and really because of the way that he's projected externally by the media and that's the only way really people can consume that that is the only opinion of the time there's no chinks anywhere there's no oh maybe he's not but maybe he could do there's none of that nobody goes to the thing the death of boxing one report said that no promoter in the land would put on the rematch because it was a farce there were suggestions that patson had thrown the fight because the mob had lent on him to do so so one one report said that He'd even been threatened that by the mob that if he didn't lose the fight, then they were going to get rid of him. It's over and around. They think there must be something untoward here. But mm. it wasn't. It was just a, a blizzard from Liston. There's a rematch the following mm. year in the following July. And if anything, it's more underwhelming. I mean, it lasts four <laughs> seconds longer, but yeah. there's no change to the dynamic whatsoever, is there? It's, it's quite startling how much of a carbon copy it is. One thing I always think is quite sweet. So it takes place 10 months later, like you say, which struck me as quite a long time, which it is at the Las Vegas Convention Center in June. So hot, but by then it's all air cons and and whatnot. Supposed to happen in Miami in the April of 63, but Sonny Liston, this fearsome beast, hurts his knee playing golf. So they have to push it back (laughs) by three months just to get him fit again. So no one could put a dent on him, but he swings that dodgy that he's injuring himself playing golf. On a Monday night as well, and again, quite sweet, the idea that gamblers would come in for the weekend and instead of flying home, they'd stay and watch this fight, which if anyone's ever been to Las Vegas on a Sunday, it's the most (laughs) bleak place you'll ever encounter in the whole of the world. So imagine hanging around for the Monday, but again, a different time. Very much a carbon copy. The only difference is that Patterson gets dropped slightly earlier, but does get up this time. But by that point, he's 
a sitting duck and uh you think he'd kind of put in some extra hours in the gym and but i think this skip is the, some rope and this is the point though i think is that he could have done anything he wanted to but he was no match for Sonny Liston, no matter what. Yeah. And like you say, 10 months is a long time. You could do other things. Maybe Liston could take his eye off the ball. I must say some people had suggested that Patterson, who had been stopped by Ingemar Johansson quite badly, had regained the World Heavyweight title in the rematch. So he had previous of turning fights around. Mm. So they thought maybe he could do it this time. Maybe if he gets it right, people were backing him to do it. And then it was the same, the same fight. And it's the same again, but only this time Patterson's getting booed as well in the start of the ring because by that point his credibility is shot to pieces because of the first fight. And all the time we've had this narrative about how this will affect civil rights and who's who's good and who's evil. All the time there is a meteor racing across the sky from another direction that will fundamentally alter not only the course of heavyweight boxing, sporting culture and the lives of these two men. Mm. So this is, as he was at the time, Cassius Clay. Two of the most infamous fights. Yeah. The first one, Cassius Clay, because he's still Cassius at that point, is said to have absolutely no chance because we've seen what Sonny Liston has done. To the smaller guy. To the smaller guy. And we've never seen a fighter like Cassius Clay. We've never seen someone that quick, that agile. So talk us through that famous night mm. in Miami when he shakes up the world. First of all, to take it right back to that rematch, is that they had fighters at the venue who were kind of introduced to the crowd, one of them being Cassius Clay, on the night in Las Vegas. They sort of touch gloves with Pats and he touches gloves with Liston and he pretends to vault the rope because he's so scared. You know, he's already <laughs> being this comedic character. And Patterson's laughing at him, you know, and he's making a bit of a scene. But even if you read the reports from the rematch, people are saying, there is Cassius Clay, but he's miles off it. And then... His first defence, Sandy Liston, is against Cassius Clay, another smaller guy. So how is he going to stand up to this fearsome guy who is all, now is finally proven himself? So how can Cassius Clay do it? And he did. And in the rematch between Liston and Cassius Clay, we go back to this idea, Declan, of the mob and their hold in boxing. So this is one of the most famous knockouts slash pseudo-knockouts that the sport has ever seen. It also gives rise to one of the iconic photographs that the sport has ever produced of... Sonny Liston, this supposedly unstoppable man, flat on his back, yeah. sparked out, and Cassius <laughs> Clay standing over him with his fist cocked in victory. So I would say as well, the month before the Liston-Patterson rematch, so June 1963, Cassius Clay beaten Henry Cooper, R. Henry at Wembley, but he nearly got stopped himself in the fourth round. And then if he gets stopped by Henry Cooper, the whole sport changes. Nothing happens, no. wow. But then to think, he almost gets stopped by Henry Cooper, how can he do this against Sonny Liston but then it's exactly what he does that photo is incredible this photo and the context of it is how could that have happened without some sort of outside interference i.e. as the mob got on top of this is there some sort of betting scandal the punch that finishes it as well you barely see it the phantom punch people suggest that he's chucked it I watched that that fight on YouTube and they slowed it down and you can see it does land squarely but when you watch it at real speed it looks like it didn't really happen it didn't touch him that's the beauty of Muhammad Ali isn't it and that's the point and even in the interviews after people say you didn't did you even hit him he's like your cameras aren't fast enough and to be honest he's, <laughs> he's true he's right and Liston just can't quite believe it and like I said when he's been beaten in the past he, the people he didn't stop were people that he couldn't scare he couldn't scare Cassius Clay. In fact, he thought he was completely mad. I really think that unsettled him. And then it comes to it. How do you deal with a mad person? It's impossible. Or at least when you're, when you're used to scaring people into defeat, when you've got someone who can't only be scared but can't be reasoned with in any way, how do you possibly beat that person? And he couldn't. 
couldn't do it. And that was his first defence only listed. And that's the other thing you need to remember when we talk about the context of great heavyweights. His first, he waited all that time. He did such unbelievable business against Floyd Patterson. His very first offence, that happens. And he's done. And then, just to tie up all the loose ends, there is the fight where Floyd Patterson will fight the man who's now calling himself Muhammad Ali. This is in Vegas in November 1965. Yeah. And the tables have turned now because Muhammad Ali is a member of the Nation of Islam. He's hanging out with Malcolm X. He's assimilating all this culture and Floyd Patterson, who has formerly been seen as the face of civil rights, publicly at least doesn't like this. Mm. He refuses to call Muhammad Ali Muhammad Ali. He refers to him as Cassius Clay. In the fight, we maybe see the least edifying side of Muhammad Ali that we will ever see. I think really it shows it's kind of a stark display of how the civil rights and how quickly it moved at that time. That by that time, and what we in by then, 65, that that whole whirlwind of Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali has taken place and then you've got Floyd Patterson. He used to be the established champion that people were trying to knock off the top. Now he's now he's the challenger again. And he's getting taunted by Muhammad Ali, yeah, is that right? Throughout. And he taunts he taunting everyone at that point. And there's there's this huge reluctance for people to acknowledge the change that he made. Because to change was, his name. To change it, but not only change his name, but this allegiance with this with this religion, many people were obviously unsure about it, were scared of it, and really at the heart of racism is fear, isn't it? And people were scared of that, They're scared of just how open he was about this as well, because there was always that feeling of you, you can do things, but you need to do it, and it needs to make sense, it needs to be you know, at the behest of the establishment. You can't just do what you want, and he did what he want. And then that also whipped up support in, in certain areas that, again, was scary for people. So he was just totally feared guy but Floyd Patterson is still the establishment man so you can just imagine what that must have been like for Floyd Patterson because he's always been the good Negro and now he's in there against the guy who seems to be leading the way or flying the flag but in a different way. Yeah because Muhammad Ali is somebody who has the courage of his convictions he's striking out doing something that is considered taboo or a little recherche and he's still winning and he's still faded so I guess there's insecure Floyd Patterson thinking, yeah. wait a minute, my little playing at safe and coloring within the lines is losing steam and and is a little dated. It's very ex- dated, exactly. By that point, it's retro because that is not good enough by that point. Or in many people's eyes and in the eyes of certain civil rights leaders, that is not good enough anymore. And they need something else to make the change. And Muhammad Ali is that. But not only that, he could barely touch him. And in the course of that fight, how does Muhammad Ali treat Floyd Patterson? He boxes him. I think it's a 12th round stoppage. He, he knows what he's, he takes it as a opportunity. The theory is he could end that fight. He could end it whenever earlier. he wanted. And, that, and this is always the thing with boxing is that boxers will always say, well, I don't hate this guy. It's just business and I don't dislike him. And if you really did hate someone, would you try and clean them out with one shot or would you beat them up? A sustained beating and then kind of take him out late. And whilst that's going, he is shouting at Floyd Patterson. Yeah, exactly. Saying, what's my name? You know, all this stuff. And and that became synonymous with was Muhammad Ali throughout, throughout his career. Again, against Ernie Terrell, the same, which refused to acknowledge this, the change of his name. And there is no happy ending for Sonny Liston. <sighs> no. it's the, in fact, it's probably the bleakest of endings because he's not an old man when he's found dead in 1970. No. For a man who people don't really know his exact date of birth. <laughs> yeah. The way he dies, people aren't there when he dies. So after the fight, after the second Patterson fight, he has a series of fights in Sweden 
comes back to America, puts together a little run, but he kind of never gets back in the big time. And actually, when you look at his record, he never boxed the Joe Frazier's or, you know, these other big heavyweights of that era. It never got put near them. His last fight was in 1970 against Chuck Wepner. But by December the 30th of that year, so just before New Year's Eve, he's in his house, lovely house in Las Vegas, and he dies on his own. And then a few days later, his wife returns with their seven-year-old son with this horrible smell, finds him upstairs dead. Like this once great heavyweight champion, he's dead at the foot of his bed, blood come out of his nose, and it's this mysterious situation. Do they know what killed him? So it's said they find some heroin in the in the house. It's suggested that he's a user, but a recreational user, if that's possible. There's no needles found. There's no paraphernalia. No, it's just it, this bag of heroin, yeah, which leads this idea it's a plant, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it's yeah. suggested, though, that there are some sort of like needle marks in his arm at the time. But again, it seems like a plant. It seems like some sort of frame. Then it's suggested that he's fallen over and hurt himself. Eventually, the coroner reports that it was natural causes, heart disease and organ failure or something like that. One of my old university lecturers, Rob Steen, wrote a book on this. And he said nobody really believed that a heart attack killed Sonny Liston. But they never really, nobody ever found out what well, killed he, him. Well, he was uh, kind of scrabbling around after his boxing career was washed up. And he was, wasn't he working as an enforcer for, for the mob So they Vegas? say he was back to that. So yeah. then what happens in those stories, you, you end up getting killed. And so that was the end of Sonny Liston. And the most tragic, heartbreaking thing about him is that his gravestone is in Vegas. And it reads, Charles Sonny Liston, 1932 to 1970. A man. That's all it says. That's all it says on his gravestone. How do boxing aficionados judge the Liston-Patterson fights today? Has technique changed over the years? Would you watch it now and go, oh, the strategy's all wrong? Like, would boxers today approach it differently? I think it's it's one of those technically where it hasn't changed that much. And Sonny Liston's tools are still thus that you could put his jab on any heavyweight now and it's an incredible weapon. That peekaboo style, like we say, was then taken by Mike Tyson to another level as a sort of bigger, stronger unit. It's funny with boxing, there's there's a difference in the technique, but a lot of it is much the same. The way they throw their hook, what we, what we have now is derivative of back then. And old trainers still do the same thing. A lot of the training techniques are the same. Sometimes to boxing's discredit that it's kind of behind the times and it's very old school and it needs to catch up. But these sorts of things, a good jab from a heavyweight or the way that Patterson moved his head and um, set up attacks like that it still works to this day. At the end of the day, it's two metal women having a fight in their underwear. Like that doesn't change and it hasn't <laughs> changed over the last 60 years. It's a punching contest. It's a punching contest. Declan, I knew I would enjoy this episode and I wasn't wrong. Katie, I hope you have come along for the ride now through a succession of baseball and boxing episodes that Billy has served up. 100%. 100%. If I'm not hitting a flying missile with a stick, I am <laughs> dodging a fist in my face. you got to make them pay after that though. It's no good making a miss. you got to make them pay after <laughs> I don't know what it means, but I want to get my money. (laughs) Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create 
and grew modern whales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Tom, there's always so much more to a story than meets the eye. You get into the background of these men, the hurdles that they had to overcome to get to where they are, and then the hurdles that remain after they triumph, supposedly. It's it's kind of a kind of a downer. Katie, I almost feel it's my personal responsibility when we get to the sporty yeah. end of Billy's lyrics that I take you by the hand and make it fun for you because obviously that used to be my world. Yeah. And well, I think the whole secret with sport is that actually it's not really about the sport it's about the men and the women who do it it's their backstories it's their personalities and their characters their flaws and their triumphs that's what for me always made sport interesting well it's what hooks you in and it's kind of a little microcosm of all of the struggles that we face but I don't know if this is indicative of how shallow I am as a human being, but all attention to the matter at hand melted away when I heard Declan discussing the peekaboo style, the peekaboo style. And I found myself wondering what would be my style in the ring. I think my style time would be the perky pony prance. (laughs) Tell me more. Well, I think there'd be a lot of fancy footwork. There'd be a little skippity doodah. I'd be leaping out of the way of getting slugged in the head because I don't think I'd enjoy that very much. But I do like the idea of just skippity dippity doo dying like a perky little pony prancing around that ring. Sounds like a good use of my talents. How about you? What would be your signature move? <laughs> well, I have tried my hand very briefly at boxing. And what I found was that I really enjoyed the dancing around the ring. Yeah. As soon as I got smacked in the chops all my love of what I was doing went out of me very quickly you know it's as Mike Tyson once said everyone's got a plan till they're punched in the face (laughs) well that pretty much goes for anything I think in life if you'd like another podcast to listen to Death of a Sports Star tells the stories of the sports stars that we lost too soon like Kobe Bryant Flo Jo and even Sonny Liston and our very own Tom Fordyce wrote some of these I did, Katie. If you would like to give them a listen, just search for Death of a Sports Star wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're still thirsty for more, have a listen to our previous boxing episodes with Steve Bunce, Bunce, Marciano and Sugar Ray. And while you're at it, please make sure you check out our lovely merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. If you happen to have any guest ideas or maybe just something you want to share with Katie and me, you can contact us. Email is fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. On social media, we are at Spread That Fire on both Instagram and Twitter. Next week, Tom, no, it's not an extension of British Beatlemania, but it is a fellow named Paul, Pope Paul to be exact. But which one, Katie? 
There are so many. There's numbers attached. There's John Paul, Paul Johns, maybe even Paul John George Ringo. Dunno. I hope so. I hope so. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.